Bible open, Jeremiah chapter 32, and I would like you to look at verse 38. Jeremiah says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and I shall be their God. A sweet, sweet truth. And the basis of the confession of sin this morning comes from the passage that follows in the next verse, 39 and following. They shall be my people, and I shall be their God. This morning I wish to speak to you on the subject of calling, regeneration, and conversion. I wish to speak to you on the subject of calling, regeneration, and conversion. For the, since 1950, particularly, in the United States of America, a common word has been used amongst evangelicals that appears one time in John's Gospel. Born again. Born again. Only place it appears, John 3, 3, 5, and 7. You must be born again. It's not the only time the idea is mentioned in all of the Bible, but that idea is mentioned that way all three times, that way in one place. But since the 1950s, the idea in this country, and this is bared out with historical fact, and not only historical fact, but the evidence of the church today and its condition in this country. The church, evangelicals, define being born again as follows. Did you raise your hand? Did you make a decision? Did you pray a prayer? Did you walk an aisle? If you did that, you're born again. All of you grew up with that. Every one of you. There is not a person in this room that has not been in a church or at some place and been under the influence of that definition of what born again is. You raised a hand. You made a decision. You walked an aisle. Or you prayed a prayer. That's why it's called actually born again-ism. Now, people don't like it in some places when the pastor talks about Calvinism or dispensationalism. But the church loves born againism. Born againism simply says, I've raised my hand, I've made a decision, I've walked an aisle, I've prayed a prayer. That is not at all what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus when he said you must be born again. 
I see people that will come and say to me, and this happens frequently, Pastor or James, I have a new relationship with Jesus Christ. This is my immediate response. Do you have a new relationship with sin? Or they, they come and say, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell me about your relationship with His commandments and His commands in Scripture. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have an entirely new relationship with sin. You hate it. You have a totally different relationship with the commands of God. You want them. You see them as grace that brings life, not law that brings death. And you see, to be born again is not to raise your hand and it's not to make a decision and it's not to walk the aisle and it's not to pray a prayer. To be born again is a work of God's Spirit that goes all the way back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where He begins to discuss this very thing. It is a work of God where God takes the human heart, which from the moment of conception, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and Psalm chapter 51, speaks about the nature of the heart is one that hates God. And as we have studied the first and the second commandments up to this point, specifically in the second commandment, God defines what it means to hate Him. Because none of you in here would ever say that you felt like you hated God. But He tells us in the second commandment, He tells us to hate me is not to obey me. So if you don't obey me, you hate me. Period. It even goes farther. That in, the, in Proverbs it says, Those that hate God love death. Those that hate God love death. And so changing, God is the one who changes the hating nature of a person to a nature that loves God and God's righteousness. I remember this. In September 13th, 1984, in Andrews, Texas, is 1212 North 12th Street. On a Wednesday night, Tuesday night, when Dr. Hanks came to the house, and shared with me the Roman road. All I knew is I wanted Jesus, and it has never stopped. I have always had a different spirit since that day. And it is as, as much surprise to me as it is to you that I'm a preacher. The other day I took two buddies out to the airport and climbed all over the Wagner and Brown $90 million Falcon 900 XL EASYEZ. The pilot of Wagner and Brown flight department was the man that trained me to fly turbojet aircraft. And I sat in the cockpit with one of those guys pushing and pulling and showing and doing this stuff and I told him at breakfast that when we go to the airport you're going to see a totally different James. And one of them said, there's a James out there? 
I said, you're going to see a totally different James. And man, I got in that thing. He said, can you fly this? I said, yeah. Can you land it? I, I can get it back on the ground. <laughs> this jet is based in Midland, Texas. I know right where the hangar is because that's where I did my ground school for the first turbine aircraft I flew. The ladies that inherited that jet, the widow, she takes five ladies about every two months and flies from Midland to Paris, France and gets their hair done and flies back. You're Okay. Well, Genevieve, you just remember the tithe. Uh, if you come to that place. Oh, no, I, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. If you're able to do that, can you imagine? I have never heard of such excess. But you know what? It, that's oil money, folks. That's oil money. It's a $90 million airplane. And I, and I got to talking to the head guy that hires people out there, and they were talking about they need a guy to come out there and work, sell airplanes, maintenance, and stuff like that. And the two guys I was with were talking, and we were talking about that with me. He was talking to me about, you know, you can come out here. I, do I have to work on Wednesday? No. Senate? No. You just got to get airplanes here, and we'll give you 1% of the bill. So an airplane's pulling out that's just from Dallas. This all is relevant. The bill was $2.3 million, Ronnie. The salesman gets 1% of that. That's $23,000 just because he picked up the phone called a pilot in Dallas and said, bring your jet up here and let us fix it. That would pay some bills. And I got out in the car and I said to myself and a friend I was standing with, I said, I'd rather come out here and kick the tires on the plane, pretend to be Captain Frisbee. I'm just a preacher. My nature was changed. And it wasn't because I raised my hand. It wasn't because I made a decision. It wasn't because I walked an aisle. It wasn't because I prayed a prayer. It was because I was born again. And God became my God, and I became His child on a hot September night in West Texas. He wasn't surprised, but I still stand amazed. And for all the travail and the trials, there's, there's some men in this room. You know, Johnny's in here. Johnny knows me. And I love Johnny. Larry knows me. Bill knows me. George knows me. Rick and Robert are knowing me. Jeff knows me. But still, something changed. The most scholarly, brilliant, successful, exceptional, Righteous man outside of the Apostle Paul known as Saul of Tarsus being introduced in the Bible 
was the man Nicodemus. Nicodemus could have instructed the Apostle Paul in righteousness. That not the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus. And he could not discern what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again. But he was a literalist and he thought, how can I go back in there from whence I came? And Jesus does not answer that question. He says, there are things you don't know yet that you do not know where the wind comes from and where the wind is going. And I guarantee you at Pentecost, 50 days after the, uh, 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension in the room of 120 sat the old converted Pharisee Nicodemus and when that wind came that day he knew where it came from. It came from Jesus who went to the Father to send the Spirit, the wind. And so what happens? The world says this, and I have to apologize again. I have taught you an error. Let me show you how. In principle, not in doctrine. All you need to do is leave here and go give the world Jesus. That's all you need to do. Go out here, give the world Jesus. Go out here and show them Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you if you do that. They're going to crucify you. They did it when He came. They're going to do it to us. Why? Because they have an old nature. Why is it that all of us have experienced churches that we've been in and wishing to do well and to make everything centered around the Word of God and, the, and be the people of God, we have somehow managed to get ourselves ejected? Because the church that we see is not the same church that the Lord sees. And we see it in the Old Testament when you have Israel, the nation, as a people in the land of Goshen, they are delivered into the desert. They are freed from Egypt. And then you see where they as the nation have experienced deliverance. And what takes place? The commandments are giving where we have been camping for the last few weeks. The commandments are giving and what do they immediately do? They begin to make God into an image. And they worship a cow. And then Aaron even lies about it. Aaron said the cow just came up out of the fire. Why wasn't he struck dead? That would come. And so what did you have? You had a national deliverance. You had a national conversion. They all came out. Why did they come out and go in the land of promise? To fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham that his descendants would inherit that land. But then you come to Jeremiah and now you move yourselves years away and here is this weeping prophet crying to them saying, you say you have this, you have this. People say today, we have the prayer, we have the decision, we have the aisle, we have raised the hands. They said it a different way. We have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. Because we say we are God's children, then therefore we are. And that's why Jeremiah wept. Because he had to tell them the truth. And you know what? They didn't like the righteousness of Jeremiah and they didn't like the truth that he told. So they, they stoned him to death. 
One of the reasons Jesus Christ was crucified is because He showed them what a righteous man looks like and that threatened the position of the religious people. And when you understand that, then you see where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. Well, you get a righteousness, an extra nos, an alien righteousness through Christ when you're born again. When you're born again. Let me show you this. Go over here and... Chapter 31. And then I will give you three things to teach you about calling, regeneration, and conversion. Verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with a seed of man and the seed of the beast, and I have watched over them and pluck up and break down to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on the edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on the edge. Do you see who he's speaking to? The people of Israel. Verse 31, but the good news. Here you have the gospel, the new covenant. Some of your Bibles say the new covenant. Verse 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, which I've just explained in the day I took them from the hand by the hand and brought them with their fathers. I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My, com my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Over and over they broke covenant, they broke faith, they broke the rules over and over and over again. They broke it. But it was with a nation that He made covenant with. Now the new covenant. And so in, but 33 says, But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wait, what? Hallelujah. Verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins and I will remember it no more. Glory to God. But none of that can be done by the raising of the hand. None of that can be done by making a decision. None of that can be done by walking an aisle. None of that can be done by praying a prayer. God says, I will do it. So let me sp speak to you in these few moments about calling regeneration, and conversion. And as I move into this, I want to ask you to answer this question in your own mind. Why today? Why today 
do we see? And we were guilty of this, and we have repented of it and renounced it. But why is it today that so many churches practice stupidity and blasphemy in their worship services? I will tell you why. Because they are trying to make goats act like sheep. In churches today are places where you have whole people that hate God being made for the promise of something like community and acceptance. Whole peoples who hate God trying to make them worship Him. And this is more evident today than at any other time. And in the last 70 years of Christianity, it is because of the thought of born-again-ism. It's my terms. I decide. And when I decide, that's what I'll do. Whereas God says, when I change you, I'm going to raise you from death to life. And you know what the real people of God want? The real people that are in Christ, the ones that are serious about it? This is what they say. We would, have see, we would see Jesus, sir. Just give us Jesus. Regarding calling, number one, write this down. Calling. The Bible speaks of calling. Calling in general may be defined as, here is the definition, the gracious act of God whereby He invites sinners to accept the salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus. The gracious act of God whereby He invites sinners to accept the salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus. Letter A. There is an external calling. There is an external calling. The Bible teaches this specifically in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. This is the external calling. The presentation and offering of salvation in Christ to sinners. That just makes me feel good saying that. As much as I'd love to go fly that, $90 million jet and take all of you with me and we'll go get a haircut in Paris, France and we'll go buy some shoes in Italy and then we'll fly over to Israel and walk where Jesus walked and then we'll fly over to uh, Germany and have some schnitzel. Go see the penguins in, penguins in Antarctica. The presentation and the offering of salvation in Christ to sinners. What a privilege. Together, continuing, together with an earnest exhortation to accept Christ by faith. Together with an earnest exhortation to accept Christ by faith in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins and eternal life.
The definition is the presentation of the offering of salvation in Christ to sinners together with an earnest exhortation to accept Christ by faith in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Brothers and sisters, listen. Present, the presentation of gospel facts and ideas, that's the external call. The presentation of the gospel facts and the ideas associated with them. Number two, an invitation to repent of the same thing, of this eternal, external calling, an invitation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. An invitation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And as I will anticipate myself here, but speak more of it, this is not that you get converted and you repent for three weeks and you have church high and then you go back to doing what you were doing. That's not a new nature. That's very human nature. And number three, it's the promise of forgiveness and salvation. The external call, therefore, is the promise is always conditional. Listen, the external calling as it appears in Scripture, just as it does when Jesus says it in Matthew 28, 18 to, the, to 20, it is, a condition, it is conditional, it is a fulfillment that can be expected only in the way of true faith and true repentance. And so the external call, I want you to understand this, and in some of you, this is going to confuse you that I'm saying this. And it's going to be those of you who spend the most time with me talking about doctrinal things. This is going to confuse you. The external call is universal. The external call is universal in the sense that it comes to all men to whom the gospel is preached. It is universal. Repent and believe. It is not limited to any age, to any nation, or to any class of men, and it comes to the reprobate as well as to the elect. It is a universal calling. It is external. Naturally, this call, listen, comes from God. And God seriously means it in the calling. That's the external call. The second part of calling is the internal part. The internal part. The stuff we're reading about here in Jeremiah. The internal call. Now this is not complicated. Well, it would make it complicated if I sat here and just read Scripture to you over and over, but that's not preaching. Preaching is not staying in the pulpit and shouting Bible passages. God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. Those that have ears to hear will understand it. Those that won't, won't. There is the internal calling. Let me show you this. The internal call is really the external call made effective by the operation of the Holy Spirit. So it is the calling, the external calling that is made effective by the Holy Spirit. Ah, let me tell you how it always comes. There is no exception to this because for there to be exception would be to make God a liar. The internal calling always comes to sinners through the Word of God. It always comes to sinners through the Word of God, savingly applied by the operation of the Spirit. It has to be savingly applied by the Holy Spirit. When I was in college... 
uh, getting prepared to, while I was on the track of going into seminary, before I had my, and I really need to give you my testimony, none of you have heard it, but before I ran from the Lord and, and, and went to fly, and He brought me back because of the inward bent of my heart, uh, and, and I was in rebellion against Him, I was disappointed with the seminary that I would go ahead and work for because it had done something very ugly in the public. And so I looked in saying, why not just go to Harvard Divinity School? If you're going to go somewhere, go there. And when I looked on the Harvard Divinity School website and what it cost and what it was required, the thing that I found so amazing is that here is this magnificent school that was founded as a divinity school, one of the very first ones when this nation was formed. And it talked about all of the clubs that you could be in in theology, like the Lesbian Theology Society and the queer um, expositional New Testament Greek club. And, and I didn't laugh at that moment. I just thought, how ridiculous. Well, the point is this. Those guys up there that teach that stuff, and that, listen, they may have the idea that they've been born again. But they don't have the new nature. Because let me tell you, those two things are not natural. Well, that doesn't sound good in this society. Listen, it doesn't sound good in any society. Because if I can bring to you Jesus Christ, say, James, would you just stand up there in Birkenstocks in a robe, grow your hair out in a beard, can you imagine and stand up here and just act like Jesus, if you do that, everyone will follow. Let me tell you something. If Jesus Christ, and I mean this with all sincerity, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had decided today to willingly, physically manifest Himself to us, and all I have to do is pull the curtain back and show you Jesus Christ, anyone who is unregenerate, will not find anything in Him that looks good. They will say, that's Him. They will find no favor in Him. They will find no goodness in Him. And as He begins to walk amongst the crowd, and the unregenerate begin to sense the very holiness of God, the very perfection of His Son, they will hate Him all the more because their nature is dead. The Bible says we are at enmity with God, but I would tell you this if you want to argue with that. The Bible says God is at enmity with the lost. You must be born again. So the internal calling is in distinction from the external calling because it's powerful and it leads to salvation. And it never doesn't. It never doesn't. It is a calling without repentance. When it is given, it's not taken away. I used to give invitations that say, you've heard the gospel this morning, would you stand, bow your heads? Nobody looking around. Close your eyes. If you've come to a place today where you believe you need Jesus Christ, friend, I'm telling you a bathtub could fall on your head when you leave the church. Say, you really said that? I really said that. 
an airplane could crash into your house. A couple years ago, my kids were up in Boulder, Colorado skiing with their soon-to-be cousin-in-law and about four miles from their house is when that United Airlines plane took off out of Denver flying over and dropped that 14-foot diameter engine nacelle on somebody's house. Airplanes can fall on you. You need to give your life to Jesus today. Well, what do you think would happen? Here they come. Deacons getting saved the seventh time. Heck, the preacher gets saved. Have you ever seen the Mississippi Squirrel Revival with Ray Stevens? And everybody volunteered for missions in the Congo. I love that song. So let me show you something about these call, the calling of God. And then I want to move to the subject of regeneration. The calling of God to salvation always has the same certain end. Here they are. It is a calling to fellowship with Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. It is a calling to the fellowship of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. It is a calling to inherit blessing. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. Number three, it's a call to liberty. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. Friend, listen to me. It's a call to peace. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. It's a call to holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 7. It's a call to hope. Ephesians 4 verse 4. It's a call to eternal life. 1 Timothy 6.12 And listen to this one. And it's a call to God's kingdom and to God's glory. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 That calling is external. But when it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is internal. And it leads to effect. What does it lead to? Number two, regeneration. The most neglected doctrine probably preached in the last 30, 40, 50 years. You say, well, you use doctrine, you just lost me. Ladies and gentlemen, any time that we sit down have a cup of coffee, and we discuss the truth of what the Bible says about Jesus. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. We're talking about doctrine. Doctrine, is, doctrine can be man-made, yes, but we want biblical doctrine. The Bible tells us about Jesus. We call that Christology, the doctrine of Jesus. That's not man-made. That's Bible-made. the new birth, regeneration. Anything you talk about in the Bible about the, the work of salvation, that, that's called the doctrine of soteriology. Now there's men's view on that and then there's the Bible's view. Let me show you how the Bible deals with this. and do, Just write them down. And you can write these uh, one, two, three, four, five. You can write these five things down. This is just an aside. You can write down Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. God says, I'm going to give you a new sign. He begins the discussion of the regeneration. This is the first time regeneration appears in the Bible. 
Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and in all the way that you live. He says all the way in the beginning of Deuteronomy, a book that I used to read at camp to the students to put them to sleep at night. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, he says, I'm going to give you a new sign. That's the first place he mentions regeneration. Same word as born again. Then you have it over here in Ezekiel 11, 19 through 21. I remember when this passage was preached, it was the night in Andrews, Texas, that I went to the microphone as a boy and I said uh, in front of the church, the pastor, the preacher that night, man named Michael Gott, he preached a magnificent message. And I went to the microphone and I said, I believe God is calling me to some special kind of service. I wasn't even in high school yet. My dad said, you're going to be an engineer first. So God took him home and I never got that degree. And now I'm a preacher. Look what he said. I remember this passage. Ezekiel 11, 19-21. If you're listening, say amen. Listen, you got a new sign. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And he says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and, and give them a heart of flesh. I remember hearing that. I remember where I was sitting. And it spoke to me at that moment that they may walk in my statutes, keeps my ordinance, and do them. They will be my people. I will be their God. Since I not only give them a new sign, I'm going to give them a new heart. Guess what that passage is speaking about? Regeneration. The doctrine of salvation. Soterology. Soter. Savior. The study of the Savior. Soterology. Who's going to affect all of this? Jesus Himself. Then he goes over here to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which I've already read to you. And so I just want you to write this down. He says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And he speaks of what? New generation. I'm going to make you born again. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, listen to this. It says, Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. You know what? New sign, new heart, new covenant, new creation. Regeneration. And last of all, Titus 3 verse 5, we listen to Pastor Titus. Listen to what Pastor Titus says. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, raised our hands, made a decision, walked the aisle and prayed a prayer. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there it is. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3 verse 5. He says, I'll give you a new sign. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new, a new covenant. I'm going to make you a new creation. And I'm going to give you a new life. When Jesus was looking at Nicodemus, that's exactly what He was hoping Nicodemus would remember. Because He knew the Word. And we know it happened. Because who was it that helped Joseph of Arimathea take the dead body of Jesus Christ off the cross? At the day of the Passover, defiling himself from worship, a man who had decided, just give me Jesus. You can have the religion. As for me and my house, we will follow this Christ. It was Nicodemus. So regeneration 
Here is the definition. It is the divine calling. Or, excuse me. Excuse me. Regeneration is that act of God. That act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man. What Bible verses can you prove that, James? I gave them to you just a second ago. The act of God by which the principles of the new life is implanted in a man and the governing disposition of the soul is now made holy. The governing disposition of the soul is made holy. And so let me put it to you this way. The new birth, the act of regeneration or the first manifestation of the new life is what we're talking about here. Not calling regeneration. And here it is. This is what we must understand. Why the introduction is so potent to the message. There is a fundamental change. There is a fundamental change in the principle of the life and the governing disposition of the soul that affects the whole man. From top to bottom, he's changed. 1 Corinthians 2.12, 2 Corinthians 4.6, Philippians 2.13. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This, the nature of regeneration is completed in one moment in time. One time. In one moment. It is not a gradual process like the prayer I offered on sanctification. Those of you that are visiting this morning, you are now seeing how every element of this service has come to this place. The whole service has come to this place. It is the, now listen, it is secret. It is a secret and inscrutable work of God. Listen to me. That is never directly perceived by a man. It happens to him in his unconscious. He does not know it but He will be known by its effects. Not its affects, A-F-F-E-C-T-S, effects. So it is, this is completely not subconscious, it's unconscious. Who is the author of it? Very quickly, regeneration, its nature, we see what it is. God is the author of regeneration. There is no cooperation of a man with God in the work of regeneration. There cannot be because the work of regeneration is unconscious. God does it and He does it in a moment. He does it. The calling, He gives the calling. How does He affect the calling and the power of the Holy Spirit? The operation then is operation regeneration. Boom! One precedes the other. So, and who does it? God. It is a direct and immediate work. God does it. Directly and immediately. It is a creative work. 
The Bible says, the, new, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. He who had no sin became sin for us, that we who are sinners may become the righteousness of God. There's nothing we can do to make that happen. And all of this is still taking place, and we're not conscious of it. Cautious, ca- we are not aware of it. It's a creative work. But let me tell you something. There's something else that's important that you need to know. It is, it's, inspir- it's instrumentality is also the same as the calling. The Word of God. The Bible says that, that there was a man that went out and sowed the seed of the gospel, and he went home and went to bed. And as he laid in the bed, he wondered, how was it that the seed could grow? How could the seed grow to the blade, then the stalk, then to the fruit, and then the harvester would come and cut it? But he said, all I did was sow. What did he sow? The seed. Did the corn grow because he used a designer seed bag? How about did the corn grow because he went out there dressed in the, in the comfortable uh, attire of the day and a, a popular shirt or a popular so- slogan or, or have it you know, imprinted on him or however he wanted to do, go out there to relate to the culture? Go out there, you know, so he's growing corn, so he's going to tattoo corns up and down his his sleeve and all that kind of stuff and his head and everything. He's going to go out there and his flip-flops and do all of that. Hopefully not trapping over his dress. Goes out there and does all that and people are going to say, oh, he's not offensive and, that, and listen, the corn's going to grow. That's not it. It says the sower went out and sowed and he went to bed. That's farmer faith, by the way. But no, no, no. To make the corn grow, he went out there with inspirational music. So he didn't go out there with a hymn singing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. That's a very farmer song. We will come rejoice and break it in the sheaves. Right? So they have inspiring music makes the corn grow. No, it says he went out there and he sowed the seed. And what is the church doing today? Sowing seed on stony ground. And from that parable, it looks to me about one in four are going to get it. And in those places where they need a designer seed bag and they need a designer shirt and designer music, let me tell you something, you're going to find something always common. They don't preach the whole counsel of God. And that's why a very small, major, a very small minority of the people that were delivered from Egypt entered the promised land. That's why Jesus says later on, wide is the way and wide is the gate to the road of the road to destruction and few will find it. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? It's letter C. It's necessity and place in the order of salvation. Listen, Scripture leaves no doubt as to the absolute necessity of regeneration. Born-againism says, yes, it's not, ne- it's not necessary. I will hear this this week. Someone will, is not even hearing me now probably and will say it to me this week. James, your sermon was too theological. Let me tell you something. The people of God will hear it dangerous thing to say things like that. But listen to what Jesus said to John the, John, John the Baptist. What Jesus said to Nicodemus. 
John chapter 3, he says these words. Verse 3, now if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet, I'm sorry, that's not John, that's James. Let me go over here to James, because I was like, that's talking about the tongue, and you know, that's a, go over here to John. John chapter 3, I just copied the wrong verses. John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered him, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 7, do not be amazed that I said this to you, you must be born again. Okay? So let me show you something as I wrap up this idea of regeneration, it's simply this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what it says. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Every pastor, every person that's ever preached, any person that's ever taught a Sunday school that has been faithful to the Word of God has had the same struggle that I have, and I have had the same struggle they have. There are people that just don't get it. But you cannot dumb it down for the people whom God's going to call to entertain the goats. Not every, there are going to be tares amongst the wheat. And the Bible says, do not uproot the tares because you might harm the wheat, the wheat. Right? It's one of the hardest things for people to understand. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because he's spiritually appraised. So when you say, I don't understand what you're saying, I want you to understand something. That does not say something as much about me as it does about you. Just as when the person says, oh no, I, I believe in Jesus. i got a new relationship with Jesus. Do you have a new relationship with sin? God, I hate you, James. You're just such a fundamentalist. That's why they killed Jesus. They hated. They had to shut him up. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Listen to this. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Ladies and gentlemen, which one of you in here delivered yourself at birth? Anybody? Anybody in here deliver yourself? Is it not interesting that new birth is completely a passive action? You cannot do it. You're just there for the ride and the squeeze. That's what you're there for. Regeneration is completely unconscious. It's totally the work of God based upon His effectual calling, the power of the Spirit. But then you have this idea next though, and that has to do with conversion. And this is the shortest and the last part of the message Conversion. Let me give you a definition of conversion. If someone says to you, be converted, what does that mean? Go buy a box of Uncle Ben's unconverted rice or converted rice. We're having rice at lunch today. I don't know if it's converted or not converted, but I'm pretty sure the people at lunch are converted and I don't have to boil them. Let me give you the definition of conversion. Conversion is biblical repentance and biblical faith. It cannot happen if there has not been regeneration. That's why you have people that come to church and they say, I will change over, I will turn over a new leaf. They will raise their hand, they will respond, they will come in the crisis and they're no better off after they've done that. And even we see in the New Testament writers say because they have done that and because the church has not been orthodox in its teaching on this uh, doctrine, the Bible says, you have not made that person state better. You have now made that person twice a child of the devil.
That's what that means. So let me show you conversion in general. Here it is, the definition. It is the act of God whereby He causes the regenerated in their conscious life. Now we move to the conscious life. In their conscious life to turn to Him in faith and repentance. It's wholly born of Him. And because it's born of Him, they become aware. And the moment they become aware is the moment they then exercise repentance and faith. That's general conversion. The church for the last 70 years with born-againism has not only not taught on the doctrine of regeneration, but has never practiced genuine conversion. And that's why it's a harlot. So let me give you this, and, and so you understand this completely. God is the author of conversion. You're not. While in regeneration God works within a man as passive in conversion, man is called upon to cooperate. But see, he's already experienced the new birth. How can he cooperate if the Bible says he's dead? You can't do anything. I have never gotten any... Now, there's some preachers in Africa that do this or they have some films. You know, people are dead at a funeral and they wake up in a funeral. They come out of the casket. I have not ever presided over a, a funeral where any dead person has ever come back from the dead. And I want to just say something to you, and I don't put a lot of stock in movies about that or books either, just because I've been asked recently, so you know how I feel. But I'm not going to judge you on that, but I'm not going to watch it. This is enough for me. So let me say this to you, and this is a principle to write down. This is a precept to remember. Every man can only work with the power which God imparts to him. And no man has the power to convert himself. He cannot raise his hand. He cannot pray a prayer. He cannot make a decision, walk an aisle, give his soul. There is nothing he can do unless God has called him through the Word, regenerated him by his power, giving him a new heart from a heart of flesh, then the conversion follows. And having become alive, he will decide, I don't want designer seed bags. I don't want designer churches. I don't want to have this and that. Just give me Jesus. And they're willing to become that. And if that's what they become, they may very well be willing to die for it. And what greater thing to seal your faith with than your blood? The Muslims do that. We don't have to because someone else did it for us. There are a po there's a negative and positive aspect, and I'm finished. Very quickly, the negative aspect or the ne negative element of conversion. Brothers and sisters, listen. It's this. Rep write this down. Repentance looks at the past. This is just meat. Repentance looks to the past and may be defined as that change that is brought in the conscious life of the sinner. To look back to the past and say this is where everything 
changed for me. I'm not talking about you quit smoking. I'm not talking about dipping and chewing. It's when you look back in the conscience of your life and you said, you know, I was living my life, you know, for my portfolio, for investments. If I could do it all over again, I'd try to do everything I could to make better decisions. But no, I look back and everything I look back on, it's since that time all I've wanted is God and His Word and His church and His people. And say, James, you're preaching in Latin. I know. It's because the church doesn't read the Bible. And it doesn't know the message. So let me just say this to you. That involves an intellectual element. That's my favorite element. It involves an intellectual element. Number two, it involves an emotional element. And number three, it involves the element of the will, a volitional element. Intellectual, emotional, volitional. It is wrought in a man primarily by this means. Are you ready? I bet you can't guess it. The Word of God. Let me say something about Roman Catholics. Their effect on our culture is enormous. Roman Catholics have an external conception of repentance. According to them, it comprises a sorrow, not of inborn sin, but of personal transgression, which may merely result in the fear of eternal punishment. They've committed mortal sin. A confession needs to be made to the priest who can forgive the sin. That's called sacerdotalism. And the measure of satisfaction by external deeds of penance. So there's two sacraments. Confession and penance. That's what the Reformation was all about. The whole Reformation was based upon the Catholic Church saying the only way to get to God is through confession and repentance. Penance, not repentance. Penance. And it had to be done to the priest. And so what happens in penance? You do fasting. I'd be going straight to hell. You do fasting. There's scourging where you scourge yourself. There's pilgrimages that you take and so on. But of course you can give a lot of money too and that'll buy you an indulgence. This battle still rages on today. But the Bible, on the other hand, views repentance wholly as an inward act, not an external one. The Bible tells us it's an act of real sorrow about our sin and does not confuse this with the change of life and with, it, with the result of it. It's internal. It hurts us because He who is in us is greater than he that's in the world. It grieves Him. So let me tell you about the positive element of it. It's simply this. Faith, whereas repentance looks back, faith looks forward. Faith looks forward. And there's different kinds of faith. The Bible doesn't always speak of faith in the same sense. There's temporal faith. Uh, temporary faith, as you might want to say. There, there is, uh, there's miraculous faith. You know, people followed Jesus because He was a free bread machine. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, temporary faith like you see in uh, the Jonah and what happened at Nineveh, that didn't last very long. And there's saving faith. Saving faith has a positive result and this is it. Listen, this is it. It's a positive conviction wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit as to the truth of the gospel and a reliance upon the promise of God in Christ Jesus. That's saving faith. That's saving faith.
It's in my heart first. People say they don't anymore. Oh, pastor, but you don't know my heart. Yeah, God does. It's terribly wicked. That's a stupid thing to say. The Bible's defined the heart. It's a wellspring of evil. You don't know my heart. (laughs) I'm glad. You don't know mine. Saving faith is wrought in a heart by the Holy Spirit as the truth of the gospel and a hearty reliance upon the promises of God in Christ. The elements of faith. Three elements. Here they are. Just write them down. The intellectual element. The emotional element. And the element of the will. So what do you have? The mind with a scent or with a thought, the emotion with the, with the assent, and the will with trust. Heart, soul, heart, head and hands. Heart, head and hands. Right there. And then there's the assurance of faith. The Methodists believe in their teaching that those who believe, the moment they believe, that is the only time in their life they will ever have full assurance of faith. After that, they will not. That's, that's canon law for them. Because their faith is what is known as semi-Pelagian, and I don't have time to go there, and I would love to, but I'm not. I'm hungry. And so therefore, they put their faith in what lasts for them. And so what you have here then, I have just shared with you, is a doctrine of regeneration dealing with calling, regeneration, and conversion. So let me end now. Please just listen to me. Today, we see most people that we love and care for and say they are Christian... There is no change in their life. There is no discipline and there is no work of God. There is no evidence. They are not seeking to conform their inner life to the Word of God. They are not seeking to conform as husbands and wives to the Word of God. They are not seeking to conform their families, to the Word of God. They are not seeking to conform their business practices to the Word of God. And they are not seeking to conform their voting to the Word of God. They have nothing to do with them. They have nothing to do with God They have nothing to do with the ways of God. They have nothing to do with the words of God. They have nothing to do with the will of God. And as we have seen, it is because God has nothing to do with them. Would you stand and bow your heads?